Father in heaven, we thank you for the fact that we live in a place where we can open your word freely without fear of reprisal or without having to go into secret quarters to do that. Uh, We remember this morning our persecuted brothers and sisters scattered across this globe who don't have that privilege. Uh, We pray uh, that you would help them to remember through your word that their suffering is never in vain and to keep being bold and courageous for you wherever it is that they are ministering. Lord, as we open your word now, we ask your spirit's attendance upon your word. We ask for help both for the preacher and for the hearers this morning. Help us to be attentive to the things in First Peter again as we venture back into this portion of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to extend uh, my sincere thanks to John Ebenezer uh, for leading us so winsomely and so ably last Sunday through one of the more difficult sections of First uh, Peter. Now, was it a coincidence that I gave the wives and husbands passage away to another preacher? Uh, You be the judge. (laughs) But thank you, Jonathan. I don't see, is Jonathan here today? He's here. Thank you, Jonathan, uh, for blessing us and for challenging us uh, from the pulpit last week. The truth is, friends, that we have come through two passages in the past two weeks that are rather difficult. Slaves, submit to your masters two weeks ago, and wives, be submissive to your husbands last week. As I have said uh, in weeks past, to preach the whole counsel of God means necessarily that we are going to broach subjects that will be unpopular and sometimes even offensive sounding to many modern ears. With this in mind, I was reminded this week of a story that always brings a smile to my face. It's a story from church history about a fearless preacher who lived in the fourth century, a man named John Chrysostom. Now, Chrysostom was a rather famous preacher. He was known for his extraordinary gifting in the pulpit. And in fact, his nickname became the Golden Mouth. The Golden Mouth, because of his rare ability in the pulpit. He was known for his fearlessness and his boldness. He never shied away from passages or themes or texts that were difficult for his audience to hear. Well, the story goes that during the time when Chrysostom was the bishop of Constantinople, he was preaching one day and kind of wrapping up one of his very fiery sermons. And as the sermon drew to a conclusion, the congregation broke out into hearty applause. But instead of simply receiving the applause, instead of simply saying thank you to the congregation, Chrysostom actually turned on the congregation and began to denounce them (laughs) verbally for the fact that they had applauded the sermon. He said things like, you people have no intention on taking to heart anything I've preached And I have serious doubts that you will apply anything that we've covered today to your lives. And then he followed that up by declaring that from now on, applause in the church would be forbidden. Well, the response from the congregation to this rather withering word from Chrysostom was then to break out into even more hearty applause than they had before. 
And then I don't think Chrysostom said anything after that. Uh, that story is funny. I think it's funny. But it raises an interesting question. The question is, what does it mean to sit under the preaching of God's word? As you come to this building every week, and you listen to someone preach the word, what is the point? Is it about just merely being kind of stimulated mentally for half an hour or 40 minutes? Is it about entertainment value? Or is it about simply evaluating the oratorical skills of the preacher? Or is it about something broader and deeper than any of that? In Luke 8, 18, uh, Jesus said something that I think is rather interesting when he said this. Luke 8, 18, he said, Consider carefully how you listen. My ongoing prayer as your pastor and my, my ongoing earnest hope for each of us is that we would be careful how we listen. My hope and my prayer is that the time that we spend each week under God's word would be a catalyst, a tangible part of nothing less than the transformation of each and every one of us, that God would be pleased to grow us and change us really and truly by constant exposure to his holy word. And I hope you're with me on that. Now, I am never going to chastise you for applauding a sermon like Chrysostom did. But again, my earnest hope is that something more than applause would be taking place in your life by this regular time that we have in the preaching of the word. And that's my prayer again today as we go now to the next portion of 1 Peter where certain virtues or certain characteristics, if you want to call them that, are commanded, virtues and characteristics are commanded in your life and in my life. Now let's consider carefully how we are listening to this next portion of First Peter. And let's listen for ourselves here. Would you do that? Not for the person next to us or the person that's across the aisle from us. Boy, they really must be convicted by this sermon. Don't do that. Listen for yourself this morning. We start today at First Peter 3.8. Peter writes, Finally. Now, when you say the word finally, usually it means that you're wrapping something up, that you are concluding an argument, that you are finishing a portion or a section of something. Probably Peter's finally, here in verse 8, indicates to us that the section that he began back at 2.11 is now wrapping up. The section that began at 2.11 had included a word to the church about submitting to authorities. The section that began at 2.11 had included a word to slaves to submit to masters and wives to submit to husbands, etc. Now at 3.8, when Peter says, finally, that section of the letter is now concluding. Finally, says Peter, all of you, 
So now Peter's focus broadens from it's not just slaves anymore or just wives or just husbands. Now it's everybody in the entire church. All of you in the church, he says, and then he's going to give us these five virtues, these five qualities, five characteristics that are commanded by God to each and every one of us. Edmund Clowney, who taught for many years at Westminster Seminary, suggests that we think of these five virtues sort of like the five fingers on a hand. Each finger is a separate virtue, but yet each of the five is connected to the hand, and so each of the five work together. Now, friends, if you want to be an attractive person, And I'm not talking about being physically attractive. I'm talking about the much more important attractiveness that is an internal attractiveness that radiates out into the world and brings blessing to the world. If you want to be attractive like that, then I trust that you will listen well to these five commanded virtues here and pray God's help to apply them to your life. And we need to note very well as we begin here, I hope you're on track with me here, we need to note that each of the five will have a definite community dimension or a social dimension. Each of these five virtues has something important to say about relating well to others. So this is not about individualism here. This is about living well and living godly in relationship to others. We have to remember that after all, each and every one of us, no matter who we are, is an image bearer of a community. We are image bearers of Father, Son, and Spirit, the eternal community. Being image bearers of this God means that we are meant for community. How do we do community? How do we get along in community? Well, these five virtues that Peter's going to give us will help us get our bearings in living healthy within community. All right, so virtue number one, Peter says, live in harmony with one another. Now, the Greek word that Peter uses here is interesting. The Greek word is actually be, uh, to be like-minded, really. And some English versions reflect that. You might have an English version that says, be like-minded. Now, all of you just hired a Caucasian guy with Irish-Scottish roots uh, to be your pastor. You hired a guy who likes the Edmonton Oilers, Connor McDavid got a hat trick last night. You hired a guy who likes adventure in his culinary choices. Uh, I was in Niagara Falls a couple weeks ago, and I had some of the best chicken korma that I think I've ever had with my friend Carl as we sat in fellowship together over the table. I also like jazz music and bluegrass music and Christian hip-hop. Yes, and, and Baroque music. And, and I love to read dense theological books. And in my downtime, I love to do up some authentic barbecue, some low and slow delights that take many hours to cook. 
Now, the point is this. The point is that many of you will not share my likes and my dislikes, my opinions, or what I think is fun. Similarly, I may not share your conclusions about food or politics or music or the like. When Peter talks here about being like-minded in verse 8, he's not talking about those sorts of things. We can disagree with one another on lots of stuff as Christians, but what we must agree on is this, that we love God, that we love one another, and that we aim to serve God and serve one another. What we must agree on is Christ and his gospel. Amen? Amen. On those things, we must be like-minded. We must be unanimous, even if we are not uniform in our likes and our dislikes, opinions about politics and the like. The command here is to be like-minded, church, in what really matters. The person and work of Jesus Christ, the gospel, loving God, serving God, loving one another, submitting ourselves to the good of the other. We are to be unanimous in those things, even if we are not uniform in other ways. So that's virtue number one. Be like-minded. Virtue number two, or finger number two on our five-fingered hand, Peter says... Be sympathetic. Now, what is it to be sympathetic, as the word of God is commanding here? And again, this is commanded, right? To feel sympathy is commanded here. Interesting, isn't it? Be sympathetic. What is it to be sympathetic? To be sympathetic is to enter into the experience of another person. Whether it means entering into the sorrow that another person feels or entering into the joy that they feel. Sympathizing can be a suffering with, a weeping with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. Or it can be also, on the other hand, a laughing with, a rejoicing with those who rejoice, Romans 12, 15 again. And obviously, friends, to be a sympathizer means that you have to know people, right? You have to draw close enough to a person, listening to him or her, risking yourself, being vulnerable, spending time, earning trust, so that you can be in a position to see that maybe behind that smile that they wear all the time, uh, there is some real pain there that I can share, that I can draw alongside and offer my support to them and maybe offer a shoulder to cry on if they need that and just listen to, to be there for their good. Be sympathetic, says God to you, says God to me. That's virtue number two on our five-fingered hand. The attractive person will be a sympathizing person. Virtue number three, or characteristic number three, 
Love as brothers, or we could say love as sisters, just so our ladies don't get off the hook here. Now, notice that Peter centers us, doesn't he, in family lingo again. Notice this, family lingo. Now, I have just one biological brother. I love my brother. I can say that openly. I love my brother dearly. Ross, my brother, lives back in Alberta. Uh, He and I still text each other on a daily basis. We still rehearse the same old jokes, and we kill ourselves laughing as if we were still 9 or 10 years old. Uh, I miss him. I really do. I miss being able to see him on a more regular basis in person. He's my brother. I love him. Peter says here, friends, that it's that sort of familial love of a dear sibling that is to be manifest in the church. You people of the church who come from different nations, from different backgrounds, who are different ages... You and I are to love one another as close siblings love one another. And here Peter uses the word Philadelphos, brotherly affection. That's why the city of Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love, because it comes from the Greek word Philadelphos, brotherly affection. You and I in the church are to feel this sort of love, feel this sort of love for one another, to feel this love. It's, this isn't about a sort of cold, well, I love you, friend. It's, 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 not, it's not that. It, this is about you. You're my brother, my sister. I really love you. Characteristic number three, love as brothers. Number four, be compassionate. What's God doing here? He's commanding compassion for you and for me. Now, the Greek word that Peter penned here, that the NIV translates as compassion, is a rather interesting one. It's in a word group that describes, you ready for it, guts or inner organs. The King James Version actually translates, in a place like Colossians 3.12, it translates bowels of mercies. Bowels of mercies. This word group has to do with the inner, innerness of a person, the very guts of a person. Now, in our day, we might say something like, he had real guts, meaning he was a courageous kind of a guy. So guts in our day has to do with courage usually and boldness, But in the biblical sense, guts are connected more with mercy, with concern for the other, compassion. So Jesus had guts. He had compassion on the crowds. Same word group in Matthew 9.36. He had compassion, guts, on the crowds, bowels of mercy for the crowds because the crowds were harassed and helpless. Jesus had guts, had compassion, springing from the inner innerness of himself. He had compassion on two blind men in Matthew 20, 34, touching their eyes so that they received their sight. Here in 1 Peter 3, 8, you and I are commanded to have guts in this sense, to feel tenderness, to feel warmth for others, to show love to them. 
to take action on their behalf. Be compassionate, says Peter. If you want to be attractive to others and bring blessing to to the world, be compassionate, be tender-hearted and concerned for the other. That's the fourth of five fingers on our five-fingered hand. Fifth, be humble, says Peter. Now, in Peter's day and in his culture, humility was certainly not a virtue or a characteristic that was well regarded at all. In fact, in Peter's day, humility meant that you were weak and that maybe you were unable or unwilling to defend your rights. So when Jesus said of himself that he was humble of heart in Matthew eleven twenty nine, he was flipping upside down commonly assumed notions of what was good and what was virtuous. And friends, the gospel does that, doesn't it? It redefines what is good and what is not good. Humility... According to our God, we need to see this, is something to be sought, something to be prized. It is honorable to be humble in a world that is often characterized by pride and by self-interest. Now, what is it to be humble? To be humble is to think of others more highly than one thinks of himself or herself. To quote I, I. Howard Marshall again, He says, humble people are those who are conscious of their own position as God's creatures, entirely dependent on him, and therefore who are able to think more highly of others than of themselves. Be humble, says Peter. All right, so with our five-fingered hand in front of us now, having looked at each one of these five virtues just a little bit, the question naturally arises, and maybe some of you are asking it already, how do we obey? Be compassionate, be sympathetic, be How do we obey this? It's one thing for God to say to us, be sympathetic, be compassionate, be like-minded. How do we get there? And I know that some of us don't feel very sympathetic, generally. Some of us don't feel very humble or compassionate. And we wonder, well, how, do we, how in the world do we obey these commands to feel certain ways about other people? Well, very quickly, some help to you. And I'm getting this mostly from John Piper here. He's written a lot on this. Here's some assistance to help you gravitate from feeling perhaps unsympathetic, if that's your struggle, gravitating from there to actually being a person who is sympathetic. Or some help that will take you from feeling very little compassion, if that's your struggle, to actually being compassionate, like we are commanded to be here. What you do is this. You take this text that we're looking at, you put it in front of you, and you go to prayer. And you confess to God, well, Lord, I just don't feel the compassion that you are commanding here. And, and, and so I'm praying your Spirit's help. 
I repent. I turn away from that familiar, non-compassionate sort of dullness that has characterized me. And I turn to you, Lord, to work in me what you command here. I want to become truly and actually compassionate to actually feel those feelings of compassion for people. And I want to be the kind of person who then acts out of the compassion that I feel. Do it, Lord. So you repent of your dullness to the things that are commanded in God's word, and you pray down his help to transform you, and he will do it. Amen? Make it a real issue of prayer, and watch God work in your life. Yes? Yes. Let's continue to verse 9. Now, Peter had spent years with Jesus, hadn't he? Up close and personal with Jesus Christ. Peter had heard the voice of Jesus say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Peter had been taught that absolutely... Countercultural, subversive, upside down stuff. And he'd been taught it straight from the mouth of the master himself. Well, here in verse 9 of 1 Peter 3, Peter is essentially reiterating what Jesus had taught him Do not repay evil with evil. Lord, have mercy. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult but with blessing. Now, friends, we need to linger over this teaching here for a moment. I think that if the actions commended in this verse were actually practiced in our world, the world would be a radically, totally, completely different place than it is now. We would not even recognize the world if these things were actually practiced. Hey, Palestinians and Israelis, do not repay evil with evil. Just stop it now. Hey, Sunnis and Shiites, do not repay insult with insult. Hey, Trump supporters and Clinton supporters, How about blessing the other when the other insults you? Hey, Brent Dunbar, check your retaliatory tendency when you're engaged in a disagreement with your wife. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult but with blessing. Friend, when your character is defamed by someone, when you suffer verbal abuse from somebody, when somebody treats you badly, what is your tendency? Now, if you're like me, you would like to retaliate, to get even, to pay back the currency of mistreatment with the same currency. But what God is calling you and I to do here, we need to see this, what God is calling us to do is radical, is it not? This is instruction that is coming to us from another world. 
How radical is it? Well, you see, not only are you and I to refrain from spitting back curses at the person who has just spit curses at us. Not only are we to not punch the face of the person who has just hit us and knocked our glasses off. Not only are we to shut up with our planned, snide, counter-insult to the person who has just insulted us. Not only that, listen, God says to us that we are to go even further than just refraining, than just keeping silent in the face of injury. We are actually to bless, you see it in the text, to bless that person who has offended us, who has hurt us, who has injured us and worked evil on us. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. How hard is this, Lord? God is saying to us, invoke my favor on the person who has wronged you. Show grace to the person and ask me to show my grace to the person who has injured you. Repay the evil done to you with blessing on the perpetrator. How radical is this? But yet it's precisely, friends, what we see our Lord doing and what we see his followers doing in the pages of Scripture. For example, we see Jesus speaking words of blessing from the cross, blessing on the very heads of those who used hammers and spikes to fasten his limbs to the cross. The nerves in his arms and legs screaming in pain, And Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Words of blessing. And we see the the deacon Stephen in Acts chapter 7 praying as he is being stoned to death, praying that the sin of killing him not be held against those who are doing the killing. What is the call here? The call here is to throw a great big wrench into the cycle of retaliation and payback. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, notice, to this you were called, to what were we called? To this refraining from biting back, to this blessing those who injure you, to this you were called. The believer is the one who is called to live out this radically countercultural existence. So that, says Peter, you may inherit a blessing. Now notice it's not so that you may earn a blessing, right? It's not earn, it's inherit. In other words, we don't earn a blessing from God if we refrain from hitting back and if we pay back evil with blessing. We don't earn a blessing, we inherit a blessing by being this kind of restrained, non-retaliatory person. God, Peter has told us, rebirths the Christian person, right? 1 Peter 1, new birth, he rebirths the Christian person, he enables the Christian person to fulfill what he commands. He always gives us the enablement to fulfill what he is commanding. And that person who fulfills what God's commands by the power of the Spirit is the person 
who will inherit a blessing. So what do you want to retaliate against right now in your life? Who do you want to retaliate against right now in your life? Is there somebody? I counsel you with the word of God in front of me this morning to do the hard thing. Only with the help of the Holy Spirit. And not repay evil with evil. But bless the one who has injured you. Well, let's go finally to verses 10 through 12, where Peter gives now what is the longest quote of the Old Testament in the entire letter of 1 Peter. Notice this. Peter quotes now Psalm 34, verses 12 through 15. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, and ladies fill in the word her here, and his, her lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter gives this long quote, long quote from Psalm 34. I think it's important to note that Psalm 34, if you have your Bible, you can flip there. According to what we find in the little superscription that sits up above verse 1 of Psalm 34, Psalm 34 is a psalm written when David was exiled from Judea. He was living in the land of the Philistines. David was living as an exile when he wrote this psalm. He was running from Saul. But Psalm 34 speaks a great deal about the provision of God and the redemption of God and the deliverance that God brings. That's interesting. Peter quotes Psalm 34 at length in his letter, and Peter is writing to exiles. He's writing to those of us who are strangers in the world. Like David who wrote Psalm 34, we need to understand that even as exiles in this world, our God provides in our exile, does he not? He sustains us. He will deliver us fully and finally at the close of history. Amen? I think that's part of Peter's reason for quoting this particular psalm. David was exiled when he wrote it. We are exiled in this world now. David trusted God for deliverance and provision. We can also. But now here's the challenge to us from these verses. That in the meantime, so during this exile that we find ourselves in, in the meantime, we must act, we must strive, we must live obey, we must be engaged in stuff, we must work. There is action involved. You see, the Christian life is not about just sitting back passively in a closed room and thinking blissful thoughts. There's action involved. Notice this. In verse 8, we have those five fingers of the hand, so those five characteristics that make for an attractive, blessed life. Well, now here in verses 10 and 11, we have another five fingers on the second hand, or on the other hand. These five in verses 10 and 11 are a further five commands, we'll go through them quickly, that if obeyed, ensure the good life, the blessed life that God desires for us to have. Watch this. He says, whoever would love life and see good days. Do you want that? 
Do you want contentment in your life? No matter what you're facing. Do you want good days? Well, then Peter says, fingers number one and two on hand number two. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Are you prone to gossip? Stop it now, says God. Do you feel like slandering someone? Take that and throw it in the garbage and close the lid and never come back to it, says God. Do you feel like bragging or lying or being rude in your speech or cursing or taking the name of God in vain? Don't, says God. If you want to live a beautiful life of contentment, that can start now and it can last out into eternity. If you want to live that life, then bridle your tongue from evil and deceitful speech and loose your tongue with words of love and blessing and edification and praise and truth. Well, finger three on hand number two, verse 11. Turn from evil. Now, notice again the action, the effort involved here. Turn from evil. Do a 180-degree turn from evil. Repent. Change your mind. Walk away from evil thoughts, actions, and plans. The person who would see good days and love life must turn from evil. Finger four on hand number two. Do good. Do good. It's pretty broad, isn't it? Are you an architect? Then go about building the best structure that you possibly can and glorify God while doing it. Do good. Are you a painter? Then paint the best watercolor that you can come up with, praising God as you do it. Are you a mother? Then worship God. Do good by taking care of your children, teaching them the gospel, caring for their needs. Even if tomorrow at work you just smile at somebody who looks as if they've been chewing on lemons and sucking on cement. <laughs> then you're doing good. Do good. And then finger number five, on our other hand, seek peace and pursue it. Now notice again the action here. Seek peace, pursue peace. These are effort words, aren't they? Sometimes what this suggests, it's, it suggests that sometimes it takes real strenuous effort to be a peacemaker. Trying to attain peace, I think, at times, is like trying to chase after a $100 bill in a windstorm. It takes concentration, it takes resolve, it takes effort. Seek peace and pursue it. Be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, says Jesus, for they will be called, what? The children of God. And then finally in verse 12, the scripture talks to us about God's head. Notice this. It talks about God's head. It talks about the eyes of God being where? On the righteous. He's watching with his eyes. He's looking to see that the ten fingers we've talked about this morning are operative and manifested in our lives, his eyes. And then it says that his ears are attentive to what? To prayer. We know that's right. We know that's right. God hears our prayers attentively. And then finally, his face. His face is against those who do evil. The most terrifying place that a person can be is the place where God's face is against them. 
May it never be with any of us. God's head, his eyes, ears, and face in verse 12. All right, so having journeyed through this passage, I want to ask you as we close, what part of God's word challenged you most today? Uh, Which one of the one or two or three or ten of the fingers that we talked about this morning do you lack the most, least identify with, need the most help from God to make real in your life? Which ones will you make an issue of prayer this week? And then conversely, where are you doing well? Where can you praise God this week for his work in your life? Maybe you notice that compared to two years ago or three years ago, uh, I, I, I think that somebody told me I have more humility than I used to have, or maybe I'm a little more compassionate than I was, or I have more love for brothers and sisters in the church. My speech is more restrained. Praise God for his work in your life. Again, folks, the whole focus of the whole passage is community. What does God expect in human relationships, both inside the church and with those who live outside the church? I trust that God will help us apply the things that we've looked at today. Let's pray. Our good Father... We praise you and thank you for this word that you have given to us. Uh, These characteristics or virtues that we can kind of wrap our hands around and not only contemplate but apply in our lives with your help. We pray that for each and every person here in the church, Lord, that we would take this word this week, uh, find a quiet time and pray through it. We thank you for never leaving us as we are but always being willing to transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may our Savior, who cheers each winding path we tread, give grace for every trial and feed us with his living bread. May he grant you strength when you are weary and increase your power when you are weak. Amen. Have a great week.